0: Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is Ephesians, the fourth chapter that I'm looking at in my Bible. i invite you to be finding Ephesians chapter 4 in your Bible as well. Our Bible reading schedule is going to start in Ephesians chapter 4 this week, and so we'll get a little bit of a head start on that this morning. And as you're turning to Ephesians chapter 4, let me echo the welcome from earlier. We've got a good number in attendance this morning, and I am delighted to be a part of this good number. I hope that you're able to say the same thing. It's always a privilege when we're able to come together with people of light, precious faith so that we can worship God, especially here on the first day of the week. Let's read together here in Ephesians chapter 4. I'm reading right there at the top of the chapter in Ephesians 4, beginning in verse number 1. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility, gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What do you think about this story that was published in August of 1999 by the Landover Baptist Church that had this headline, Church Splits Down the Middle Over Issues Regarding a Piano Bench? The story reads thus... 100 years of Christian fellowship, spiritual love, godly unity and community growth ended last Tuesday in a fit of congregational discord not to be rivaled in this century. Holy Creek Baptist Church was split down the middle like the tabernacle cloth that tore at the point of our Lord's crucifixion. It is said that one could hear that rip a hundred miles away. Holy Creek Baptist was severed from the once stalwart cord of unity that bound them together. The fist of discord has pounded an army of Christian soldiers into two disheveled, unorganized factions of estranged members. The source of dissension in this once holy house of God is a piano bench that still sits behind the 1923 Steinberg to the left of the pulpit. Landover Baptist members who have friends or relatives at Holy Creek Baptist say that that old bench was always a source of hostility. People should have seen this coming. That congregation was getting ready to break for the last ten years, one said. It's just a shame that it had to be over a piano bench. At present, the Holy Creek congregation will be having four services on Sunday. There's been an unspoken agreement that each faction will have its own separate services with its own separate pastors. We are told that the services are far enough apart that neither group will come into contact with the other. An outside party will be moving the piano bench to different locations and appropriate positions between the services so as to please both sides and to avoid any further conflict that might result in violence. Question. Do you think that those events really happened? Or do you think that that story is entirely fabricated? Looking across the room right now, and it seems like the look on most people's faces is, well, I don't know. That that seems kind of outrageous and ridiculous, but but I think I could kind of see that happening. Well, you should know that it's a completely made up story. I found that story on a website that kind of does things like this. They publish religious satire. But the reason that satire is funny, and what makes this story kind of funny is the fact that nearly all of us, as we were reading that and hearing that, even if it was just for a split second, all of us thought to ourselves, yeah, I can kind of see people who would call themselves Christians acting in that way. And I think that says something to us. That says something about how we view discord within a local congregation. Because the truth of the matter is, probably every single one of us in this room, we could all tell a story about church discord from our own experiences. If you hang around God's people long enough, you're going to have a story to tell just like that one. And even if it's not as dramatic as that particular story, you will have a story to tell about friction or about conflict among the people of God. Maybe it'll be a story about sitting in a Bible class where two brothers started talking back and forth. They started disagreeing over a particular point. And you could tell that one or both of them was starting to get angry because they started raising their voice a little bit. They started maybe getting a little bit flush and red in their cheeks and in their neck. And as a result, the whole conversation just started kind of raising to a whole nother level. It was getting just north of that uncomfortable line. you ever been in that environment before? I have. And it is very uncomfortable. I remember years ago being in a congregation that practically broke out into civil war over the issue of whether or not women could wear pants to church. It was such a long, battled and contentious issue that it was later dubbed the Battle of the Britches. And it created a considerable amount of strain and discord within that church. Or maybe you've been a part of a congregation that for whatever reason experienced one of those big nasty splits right down the middle where you showed up to church on a Sunday morning and everything seemed fine. And then you showed up the next Sunday morning and half the people were gone. You stick around God's people long enough and you're going to have a story to tell. And let me be clear about that. I started with that kind of humorous story there. I want to say right here, it's not funny. It is disappointing whenever that kind of thing occurs. It is discouraging. When things like that happen within a local church body and you've got to try to work through that, it is hard. But I want to tell you that what concerns me more than people who are disappointed by that or people who are discouraged by that are the people who find their faith destabilized by that. Because one of the sad consequences often of discord among the people of God is that that very rarely happens without there being some casualties. It's been my observation That whenever fusses and fighting occurs within a local church, the most disheartening effect of all is whenever someone is so damaged, they are so upset, they are so disturbed by that, that they end up losing their faith. Which is why I want to say to you this morning that the time to buy an umbrella is not in the middle of a hurricane. The time to buy an umbrella is before it ever even storms. And that is why this morning I do want to talk about dealing with discord. And I want to talk about that before that storm ever even arrives here. And that is as well why I began in Ephesians the fourth chapter, where Paul admonishes those brethren in Ephesus, and by proxy he is admonishing us today to maintain unity, to preserve peace within the body of Christ. And one of the ways that I want to suggest that we do that, maintaining unity, is by being prepared. By being prepared to deal with discord in the right way. Because if it's going to happen, and it will, and if there's a chance that it will destroy my faith, and it could, then it seems like it would be prudent on our part to talk just a little bit about how to cope with discord. It is, I believe, one of the devil's most effective tools, one of his most effective strategies for frustrating the work of God. And we need to know how to deal with that so that we can weather that storm. Let me set before you this morning three things that I think will help us to respond to discord in the right way. And the very first of those things is, well, I think it's where we need to start. The first of those things is that we need to just accept reality. I've already said a couple of times this morning that if you hang around God's people long enough, you're going to have an experience with discord. Yet I think for some people, they think, well, that just, well, that just can't happen. I just can't imagine that being so. That that would happen amongst God's people. People who love Jesus. People who are trying to be and, and, and walk like Jesus walked. I mean, come on. That can't happen here. I mean, when we're dealing with folks out there, when we're dealing with folks in the world, well, yeah, of course you're going to experience friction and discord. Whether it's belligerent coworkers or irritating neighbors, yeah, we expect ungodly, contentious behavior from people out there who aren't Christians, but come on, we don't expect that in here. We don't expect that in this group. In fact, think about this, how many times... How many times do we refer to these assemblies, these gatherings, as an escape? I often say that about Wednesday night Bible study. That Here we've been working all week, we've been out in the world, we've been in school, we've been doing all these things in the world. And for thus that middle of the week coming together, it is an escape from the ungodliness and the wickedness that's going on in our world. You see, just in our language, we think that this is going to be a haven, a haven, a refuge of of peace and joy and encouragement and spiritual refreshing. But what happens when we come here and that's not what we find? What happens when we come here and instead what we find are maybe two brothers bickering during the Bible class period? Or maybe it's something of a more personal nature. Maybe a sister who hasn't talked to me. In fact, she hasn't talked to me in weeks. Or if she is doing any kind of talking, she's doing it behind my back, saying ugly things about me. Or what if we come here and somebody's mean to my child? You see, we do not expect that kind of conduct from our brothers and our sisters in Christ, yet all too often, whenever that does happen, we become disillusioned. and We become disenchanted. Here's my question about that. Is that realistic? Is it realistic to always expect peace and harmony amongst the family of God? I I, I think that's the ideal, of course. That's why Paul wrote Ephesians chapter 4. And I think that's kind of the perception that we have developed, but I am not convinced that it is a biblical perception. Because when I open up the New Testament, I do not find a local congregation that was just a bastion of peace and harmony all of the time. Case in point, read the book of 1 Corinthians. Boy, was that a church that was a model of peace and unity? Hardly. You start in the beginning of 1 Corinthians in chapter 1. Paul begins the letter just by addressing the elephant in the room. There was quarreling. There was division that was present within that body. You go to chapter 3 and Paul actually highlights the source of their division. It was their spiritual immaturity. You fast forward to chapter 6 and what's going on. You've got brothers taking brothers to court. Taking each other to legal battles with each other. You go to chapter 11 and they're mistreating one another there, so much so that it's having a negative, corrupting effect on how they observe the Lord's Supper. And then in chapter 12 and 13 and 14, these people are even fussing and arguing over the use of spiritual gifts. Man, wonder what Corinth looked like on a Wednesday night. Somebody might say, well, okay, Josh, yeah, okay, okay, Corinth, yeah. But that was a uniquely bad situation, and I'll buy that. Maybe it was. But I want to say this. It wasn't a unique situation by any stretch. Look at me in the book of Acts, please. In Acts chapter 5. You know the story in Acts chapter 5, don't you? About Ananias and Sapphira in the Jerusalem church. Listen, folks. I've been in the middle of some pretty uncomfortable church assemblies, but I've never been in one where people died... In Acts 5, people die, And it didn't end there. You flip the page to chapter 6, and there's this big uproar in the Jerusalem church because some folks on this side of the building, they felt like their widows were being neglected. They were being overlooked. And the folks over here, well, theirs were all being taken care of. And that was creating some problems. That was creating some conflict within that local body. You jump ahead to chapter 15 of Acts and there's this huge blob, a doctrinal issue in chapter 15, the issue of Gentiles and circumcision and binding that upon the people. And of course it doesn't end in the book of Acts. We then make our way through the epistles. In the book of Philippians in chapter 4 and in verse 2, Paul has to call out a couple of women by name in the Philippi church who were fussing and creating all kinds of problems with one another. Then you go to the book of Galatians in Galatians 5 and in verse 15. Paul warns those churches there. He says, look, if you guys keep biting and devouring one another, eventually you're going to be consumed by one another. And so while, yes, Corinth may have been a uniquely bad church setting, it was hardly unique in the New Testament. So somebody maybe would ask, well, Josh, what what are you trying to say this morning? Are you trying to say that we ought to be comfortable and we ought to be okay with discord amongst God's people? Listen, I am not saying that. I am not trying to suggest that having fusses and having bickering, that that's somehow okay. Would you go back and grab 1 Corinthians chapter 1? In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul doesn't just address and point out the fussing that was going on in Corinth. No, he actually begins by rebuking that. In 1 Corinthians 1, look in verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Understand very clearly that it was not okay that these brethren had fusses. But there's no denying that they had fusses. Disciples do misbehave. And that does create problems. And that doesn't make it right, and that doesn't make it enjoyable. But that is reality. And I think whenever we accept that reality, it helps us to start realigning our expectations. Because what we'll do is we'll stop expecting the local church to be some sort of spiritual Caribbean resort. I'm going to show here, and everything's just going to be great. It's just going to be like life on the beach. And then when those discords do occur, we'll stop seeing that as being something, whoa, that was totally unexpected, that is so strange. But rather, we'll see that as simply being a reality of being a part of a spiritual family. And by the way, is there always peace and harmony and unity in your physical family? There's only three of us in my house, me and Tiffany and Hattie. And I can tell you, it ain't always sunshine and rainbows there. Sometimes we got to work through some stuff, and that's just the three of us. Why then would we expect any different when we're talking about a family of 120, 130 folks? Which leads right into this second idea this morning. And that is that once we've accepted the reality of discord amongst God's people, I think we need to reassess the cause of discord within the body. You know, if someone were to ask, okay, I get it, there's going to be times where there's going to be problems and there's going to be things that's going to come up, but but why? Why does that happen? Why do we have these problems? Why do we have fusses? Why do we have conflicts from time to time? I think our knee-jerk reaction to that is to say, well, I'll tell you why that is. It's because there are some wicked, evil people And we got people who do evil and wicked things, and that's what causes trouble for people within the family of God. And to be fair, yes, sometimes that is the cause. Sometimes wicked people are the cause of discord. Would you look in the book of 3 John, please? In 3 John, in John's third epistle, there was an evil man in that congregation, and he was causing problems. And John does not hesitate to single him out. In 3 John chapter 1, only one chapter, verse 9, John writes, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, he doesn't acknowledge acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Verse 11, Beloved, don't imitate evil, but imitate good. You want to know why there was discord? What was the cause of discord in that church family? There was an evil man doing evil things. His name was Diotrephes. And that's not the only time that we see that in Scripture. You look in Acts chapter 28 or excuse me, in Acts chapter 20, whenever Paul is having that discussion with the Ephesian elders and he's bidding them farewell, and as he gives him some warnings about some things that they need to be watching out for, he says in verse 30 of Acts chapter 20, he says that even from among your own selves, not just on the outside, but there may even be wolves on the inside, evil men who will disrupt and who will arise and they will seek to destroy the flock. And so sometimes, yes... Discord can be the result of evil people doing evil things. And I would just add right here that God has actually given us a process for dealing with such people. The Bible admonishes us to withdraw ourselves from factious people. That's what Paul told times. People who have evil motives and who go about just meddling and causing trouble and disrupting the body of Christ, they need to be withdrawn from If we're ever going to thrive as a congregation of God's people, we can't just sit around and tolerate years and years and years of some evil guy doing wicked stuff all the time and hindering our growth. But can I just be honest with you? Evil people doing evil things, that is not the only cause of discord within a church family. In fact, I'll take that a step further. I don't even think that bad people doing bad things is the reason for discord even most of the time. I think most of the time, discord happens within the body because you have good people who do bad things. And that is why I say I think we need to reassess the cause of the bad behavior. Because it may be that this problem is happening, not because my brother is a Diotrephes, but because it may be be that he's spiritually immature. Would you look with me in Colossians chapter 1, please? I think this is a helpful little passage. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul describes here how it is that disciples grow. In Colossians chapter 1, read with me in verses 9 and 10. In Colossians 1... And in verse 9, Paul says, He says, And so, from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Do you see the process of, of spiritual maturity that's laid out there? It begins by being filled with the knowledge of God's will, verse 9. Over time, that then gives us wisdom and understanding. When we have wisdom and understanding, that then enables us, verse 10, to walk. That is, we're going to live our lives. We walk in a way that pleases the Lord in everything that we do, so much so that we're bearing fruit in His kingdom everybody see that that's a process there? We study. We gain wisdom and understanding. We then start living what it is that we have learned. And as we do that, our lives please the Lord. Let me ask you. How long does that process take? Get that done in a year? No. That, that's a lifelong process, isn't it? We do that for the rest of our lives, don't we? Well... Take that fact, take that truth, and think with me, imagine with me maybe a guy who has been a Christian for for one year. Here's a guy that he's come out of the world, come out of, you know, not even having really any religious background at all, didn't grow up coming to church, none of that kind of stuff. This guy's a clean sheet of paper, so to speak. He becomes a Christian. And he's not one of these people that's just a Christian in name only. No, I mean, he's zealous. He's fired up. He studies his Bible. Let's say for that whole first year of being a disciple, he is diligent to study the Scriptures and to learn and to absorb everything that he can from God's Word. And he's trying to live out those things that he's learned. Can I ask you? At the end of that one year, how much does he know? Not very much certainly not as much as he's going to know after 30 years. And so let's think about this guy. He's been a Christian for one year. No prior spiritual background. Do you think the chances are pretty good that somewhere along the way, that young man is going to blow it? Yeah. You know he will. Lots of people, in fact, lots of us, we been our walk with Jesus Christ, we come into this with maybe all kinds of struggles, all kinds of baggage. We've got all kinds of bad habits that need to be undone. We've got all kinds of ignorance about a lot of things. And those things need to be overcome. Of course that man's going to blow it. We see that not just in hypothetical examples. We actually see that in the Bible as well in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, this is the story of Simon the sorcerer. So as people say, and they talk about Simon the sorcerer and the big blunder that he made here. So people say, well, you know, I don't, I don't think that Simon was ever really even converted in the first place. Well, I don't think that's true. I think that denies what the text tells us. I believe that Simon was all in with Christianity here. And yet there's that moment, verse 18, when he sees the apostles laying their hands on people, imparting spiritual gift. And some of his old thinking, it starts creeping back in. And he starts thinking to himself, Wow, I see dollar signs here. I think some money could be made here. And so, verse 19, he offers to buy this gift of the Holy Spirit from the apostles. Of course, you know what happens next. In the next few verses, Peter rebukes him. And he tells him he needs to repent. You need to pray God that God might forgive you of this. But what do we have here in this story? We have an episode of some trouble, some conflict that's going on there amongst this group of believers And it was caused by a brother who just wasn't there yet. I look at Simon and I don't see some just evil motive person. No. He's just immature. He's just still got a lot to learn. Have you ever known somebody who was a babe in Christ? And maybe before they knew the Lord, if there's one thing you knew about this person, you just knew this person had a real temper problem. And you knew, boy I tell you what, they ain't got a lot they're gonna to have to change, lots they're gonna to have to overcome. They're gonna adjust their temper and get some control over themselves. But maybe at some point, maybe they're talking with people out in the foyer, or maybe in a Bible class setting, or maybe in a men's business meeting setting, that person just kinda of gets set off and they just, they pop off. And they just start firing stuff off and saying all kinds of stuff, and it makes for this really tense and horrible situation. Listen, You don't get baptized, and then suddenly you're just able to turn that off. That's not the way that that works. You've got to work at those things. And sometimes even while you're working at it, you're going to fail and you're going to mess up. That ever happened to you? Maybe in the early stages of your walk with the Lord? If so, then maybe what we ought to do is we ought to take that into consideration whenever we think about bad behavior within the body of Christ. Because it may not be this person's just evil and wicked. It may just be that they're spiritually immature. It may be though that this discord, this problem, this conflict is, is happening and it's the result of not spiritual immaturity, but it may be the result of spiritual weakness in a brother or in a sister. I think here immediately of the example of Peter in Galatians chapter 2. Would you find Galatians 2 please? In Galatians 2, Paul is the one writing here. And he speaks from his own experience and his own involvement in Peter's life. In Galatians 2, he says in verse 11, that when Cephas, that's Peter, when he came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before, certain men came from James and he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews, they acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. What's going on here? Well, you've got Peter. Peter, who is someone that I think we would have to say is a mature disciple. Here's a guy, he's an apostle. He is a leader in those early church settings. But he's acting hypocritically, Paul says. And it's causing some problems amongst these people. So much so that Paul has to come and he has to openly rebuke Peter to his face in front of everyone. Man, talk about an awkward situation there. Can I ask you, is Peter just an evil man? Is that why he's acting this way? Because he's just a wicked man? He's doing evil things because he's an evil person? Oh, I don't believe that for one second. In fact, I believe just the opposite. I believe that Peter is a good guy. Well, why is he acting this way? Well, because I believe Peter is also a weak guy. In fact, this isn't the first time that we've seen Peter behaving this way, is it? Being intimidated by the crowd around him and doing the wrong thing. We have every evidence to believe that Peter struggled with this kind of thing for his whole life. It was a weakness. You have any weaknesses? You struggle with your temper? Maybe you struggle with being prideful? You ever struggle with being self willed and always having to have your way? You ever struggle with gossip? You ever said something to someone about somebody else? And almost immediately afterwards you thought, Man, I shouldn't have done that. Why did I do that? Why did I say that? Well, what's the deal? Are you just an evil person? Is that the problem? Or is it possible that you're a good person but you just did the wrong thing? Think about it this way as we reassess the cause. When my immaturity or when my weakness, whenever it leads to failure, maybe even failure that ends up damaging and hurting others, how do I want people to treat me? That's that golden rule thing, isn't it? You see, it's that kind of calm, reassessing of the situation that helps us to deal with discord, I believe, in a more constructive kind of manner. Instead of just immediately jumping to the conclusion, oh, that brother, that sister, he's a Diotrephes, he's an evil man. That may not be true at all. In fact, I must tell you that in the 21 years that I have been a Christian, I have met some people who I believed, they called themselves Christians, but I believe they were just evil. I believe they were just masquerading and faking it as disciples. But you know what? I can count all of those people on one hand, and I don't even need all of the fingers. I just have not encountered that many kind of brethren who are just unintentionally, they are intentionally evil and wicked in their practice. Because most of the Christians that I've encountered in my lifetime, they're just like me. They're people that are trying to do the right thing, but who struggle with those moments of weakness, who struggle with immaturity. It's not their intention to create discord. It's merely the byproduct of dealing with imperfect people. I need to think about that. I need to think about that a lot. That kind of honest assessment can really help us to process discord in an entirely different way. All of which brings us to this third and final idea this morning. That whenever we are going through a period of strife and discord, what is it that we should do? Kind of already mentioned a couple of things this morning about about our thinking and adjusting our thinking and adjusting our attitude toward these things. What do I need to tangibly do whenever the congregation is going through some kind of a rough patch? Well, can I just offer a couple of things first of all that we don't want to do? First and foremost, it really should go without saying, but quitting Jesus, that is the wrong reaction. To problems within a church. In fact, I must tell you, I have never understood at all why division and discord and church problems would cause someone to just completely abandon the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, here's this problem that comes into a church family, whatever it is. And so someone decides, you know what, I've just had enough of this. I stopped coming to church, stop worshiping the Lord, stop serving Jesus. Can I just ask, why is that Jesus' fault? did Jesus do? Talk about cutting off your nose to spite your face. Why would I forsake Christ just because some brothers and some sisters acted poorly? Who's really harmed whenever I make that decision? Leaving the Lord, that is the most terrible reaction that we could possibly have to discord. And then let me say secondly, what I think is oftentimes a second poor reaction to discord and that is to decide, well I'm just going to pack up and I'm going to go somewhere else. When folks just immediately decide that they're going to leave, and I'm going to go looking for greener pastures in another church, what I always want to ask them is I always want to ask, hey, that other church that you're planning to go to, are there people there? Because if there's people there, then I can guarantee you you're going to find the same kind of problems there that we're having here. Because there's going to be spiritually immature people. There's going to be spiritually weak people. There may even be a diatrophies, an evil person there, which means when you add all that together, there's going to be strife. There's going to be discord, even in that congregation that just looks like they're just so perfect from afar. I have preached in dozens and dozens and dozens of churches, and I have yet to find a single one that has never had any kind of turmoil. I've never preached for a church like that, and you want to know why? Because the church is made up of people. And I know the kinds of things that people do. And so if my immediate knee-jerk reaction to discord and to strife is just pack my family up and we're going to head down the road, then what all that means is, is that means I'm just going to a new group where there's bound to be some strife and some discord as well. Which means then, by making that choice, What I may be doing is I may be depriving God's people of the stability that I could help provide during a turbulent time. Because what I need to do instead of packing up and getting out of town, what I need to do is I need to be a pillar. Because it may very well be that it is my presence and my example And my admonition, that is exactly what is needed within that body to help pull things back together. This church here has been in existence for a little over 20 years now. And I've only been here for about a a quarter of that. But I am certain, I am certain that there have been some storms throughout this congregation's history. Is that probably true, those of you that have been here a while? There are people who are here today who were there then. And when those storms came, they didn't leave. They stayed. They weathered the storm. They served as a calming influence. They served as that voice of reason. They served as a pillar and they helped to keep the house up, so to speak. You know what? We need those kinds of people. When the going gets rough, we're going to need some people who will be steadfast. We're going to need people who will be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Now, even as I say that, can I, can I put a little bit of balance on that? I recognize that some of you, some of you are part of the family here at Lakeside because you left a congregation elsewhere that was experiencing some discord. And I know for some of you, I know about those circumstances. You've told me about what was going on there. And I can't stand up here and say that I wouldn't have made the same choice that you made. I've known of folks who even in the middle of a terrible church situation, they stuck around and they tried to make it work. And they tried to be that influence for good. And they tried to right the ship whenever it seemed like the direction was going off course. It seemed like the church was maybe going into error or going into apostasy. They fought that battle for the truth. They stood there for as long as they possibly could. That is, until the time came that they realized there's nothing more that I can do. And so they decided, I'm going to need to move on. And so I'm not standing up here and telling you this morning that there is never, ever going to be a time to leave. But what I am saying I'm saying that we need to diligently fight to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We need to be fighting as hard as we can before we jump to making that decision. In fact, what I'm saying here is I'm saying we need people who are going to be peacemakers. That's maybe I'm putting that up there instead of being a pillar. Being a peacemaking pillar is what we need. Jesus talked about the power of being a peacemaker in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 verse 9. In Romans 14 and in verse 19, Paul said we need to be pursuing the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. And yes, Ephesians 4 verse 3 where we started, we need to be diligent, actively putting in maximum effort to maintain unity and peace. What does that mean practically speaking? What that means practically speaking is that means that you may be, you may be the person who has to play the role of Paul in what Paul did for Peter. You may need to be the one who goes and confronts that brother or that sister who maybe was acting poorly. You may need to be the one to say, Hey, can we go get coffee tomorrow afternoon? Let's talk about what happened in Bible class last night. Because, boy, you you lost your cool in there. You didn't act the way that you were supposed to act. You need to correct that. You need to apologize. You need to make things right. You may be the one. You may be the one who has influence with that individual. You may be the one who's close enough to that person that you're able to help mend that fence that's been broken. Or maybe being a pillar means, maybe it means you're going to help mentor someone who's immature. Maybe you're going to go to that young Christian or maybe a youngish Christian who maybe is just lacking in the wisdom department. They've got all the zeal. They've got all kinds of knowledge. They just, they just lack the execution of that knowledge. So you decide you're going to take them under your wing. You're going to try to guide them gently along. You may be the exact right person to help grow their faith in the Lord. Or maybe being a pillar. Maybe it means you're just going to be the person who encourages the rest of us when the rest of us get those darkly tinted glasses and it just seems like everything is so dark and so bleak and everybody's saying, oh, the, the sky's on fire. It's just going to be terrible. Maybe instead of feeding into that negativity, you're going to be the one who's optimistic. You're going to be the one who perseveres and says, you know what, we're going to make it through this all right. It's going to be okay. We're going to pull this all together and we're going to pull through this. Or maybe, maybe being a pillar means you're just going to be the person who Sunday after Wednesday after Sunday after Wednesday, you just keep showing up. You just keep on loving your brothers and sisters, even when they're acting very unlovable. You're going to be the person who just keeps on serving and doing the work of the Lord. You're going to remain constant in your service. You're going to be a pillar. And what all of this is to say is that whenever the storms of strife and discord come, will I be prepared? Will I recognize, number one, that dealing with problems in the Lord's family, that that just kind of goes along with the territory of being a Christian. Will I, secondly, will I give my brothers and my sisters in the Lord the benefit of the doubt? And I'm going to always try to see the best in them instead of assuming the worst. And then thirdly, will I be the person who stands firm and strong even when Satan makes his attempt to try and destroy us? Just remember this, whenever we fuss with each other, it's not you or me that is the enemy. It's the devil. The devil is the enemy here. And if he ends up pulling us apart and is successful in doing that, it will only be because we allowed him to win the battle. Make no mistake about it. Just as sure as God is in our midst today as we worship before His throne, the devil is also here and he is at work amongst us. He doesn't like what we're doing. He doesn't like what we're doing today. He doesn't like what we're trying to do in total as a congregation of God's people in this community. And so as a result, he is doing everything that he possibly can to come here and to come between you and your brother, to come between you and your sister, And most importantly, to come between you and your God. If things this morning between you and your God are not what they ought to be, and that's bothering you, your conscience is hollering at you right now, you need to know that you are being pulled in two directions this very moment. First of all, our good and gracious God, He is calling you and He is trying to draw you to Himself through His Word and through His Son. But just as soon as I say that, there is also a terrible enemy who is trying to pull you in the other direction and he's trying to hold you back. It may be right now that he's trying to hold you back from confessing your faith and being immersed in water for the remission of your sins. It may be that he is holding you back, pulling you back from repenting of some sin so that you can be brought back into fellowship with your Lord and with the Lord's peace. Whatever power the devil has over your life, it's the power that you give him. Won't you take that back? Won't you take that back and then yield that control to Jesus the Christ who can set you free from sin and set you free from the devil's domain? If there's anyone here who needs to respond to the invitation of the Lord, would you take advantage of this moment? Make your way down front right now while we stand and while we sing.